The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. Body of a man lying on the floor was disheveled, stabbed to death, I believe, 37 times. The self-confessed Boston Strangler was dead, but not without one last bit of controversy. The night before DeSalvo was murdered, he made a phone call and asked Dr. Roby to meet him at the prison. According to Dr. Roby, he wanted to explain, I am not the Boston Strangler. Had DeSalvo been killed over drugs, or in a fight, or to stop him from talking? To add to the mystery, DeSalvo left behind a disturbing, poetic provocation. The elusive strangler, there he goes. Where his wanderlust sends him, no one knows. People everywhere are still in doubt. Is the strangler in prison or roaming about? From Earwolf and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Is New England. Uh, tremble in his hands. And Ida Erga. Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found. Was I mean, even our word testimony comes from the etymological root for testicles. And we're afraid, you know, we might be the next one. It's the unknown. You never know. That we fear. Set up a strangler bureau. Well, of course, I called her grandma. I think you're going to like this picture. You want the stranglings to go on? Episode 11 Digging Up the past. The storm appeared to be approaching blizzard proportions. What little traffic there was had slowed to a crawl. And over Central Square, there was that hush that is peculiar to city landscapes under snow cover. Head bent against the wind, I walked up Western Avenue, turned right on to Mass Avenue, and trudged another two blocks till I came to a sandwich shop. The place was deserted except for the counterman. This is a scene from The Gemini Man, a work of fiction about a freelance writer named Liz Collins. When her neighbor is murdered, Liz starts looking into the story. She ends up on the trail of a serial killer. What the hell kind of butcher did we have running around Cambridge? And how many women would he kill before the cops caught him? And she learns a lot about police procedure along the way. Police work has a number of axioms. One of them is that murder investigations, unless the cops catch the murderer practically standing over the body holding a smoking gun, almost always seem hopeless at the beginning. Another axiom is that the more time that passes without a solution to the case, the more hopeless the case will seem. While doing research for her fictional serial killer, Susan Kelly wanted to know what chasing a real serial killer was like. She made an appointment at the Cambridge Police Department. And uh, I was waiting to speak to one of the detectives And I got into a conversation with two other detectives who were just kind of hanging around the chief's office having coffee. And one of them said to me, 
who do you think the Boston Strangler was? And I said, well, it was Albert DeSalvo. He said he was, didn't he? And they both laughed, and one of them said, well, Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler the way my dog was the Boston Strangler. Susan Kelly finished that first novel and became a successful writer. I went on to write more, more novels. And the more I talked to law enforcement people in the greater Boston area, the same subject would always come up. Who do you think the Boston Strangler was? And to a person, no one believed that Albert DeSalvo, who confessed to the crimes, was the Boston Strangler. Kelly started digging into the case. The attorney general was a fan of her crime novels and granted her access to the Boston Strangler case files. Kelly found a lot to trouble her. The inconsistencies in DeSalvo's confessions, the police lineups where women couldn't recognize DeSalvo, Dr. Roby's belief that DeSalvo lied compulsively and would do anything for attention and fame. It all pointed to an unsettling realization. Not only that Albert DeSalvo did not commit the stranglings to which he happily confessed, but there were many other very good suspects in the crime, extremely good suspects in the crime. Kelly spent more than a decade researching the case, and she came to believe that as many as 11 different men could have committed the murders. Her 1995 book was titled The Boston Stranglers, with an S. Doubt in DeSalvo's guilt had always flickered behind the walls of Boston law enforcement. Kelly's book brought this doubt into public view. But there were others with direct ties to the Boston Strangler victims who had harbored similar doubts. I didn't know much about the Boston Strangler case growing up. Uh, I'd heard whispers about the Boston Strangler case, but in an Irish Catholic family, things like that were never talked about. Yet when I was a teenager, I saw the film The Boston Strangler on television, starring Tony Curtis and Henry Fonda. Hi. Yes? Um, Super sent me to check your bathroom. Well, can't you come back in a day or so? Casey Sherman is the nephew of Mary Sullivan, the last strangling victim, who was 19 years old at her death. Sherman remembers it wasn't until he saw the Strangler movie that he got a sense of the brutality and the fear Mary must have felt. No, don't scream. You won't get hurt. The next day, I um, brought up the subject to my mother for the first time, and I said, Mom, tell me about Mary. And she said, Casey, Mary just wasn't a victim. Mary was my best friend. They had planned to live their lives along parallel lines. They were going to travel together. They were going to raise their families together. They were going to grow old together as sisters, and all that was stolen from my mother. And I could see she was beginning to get emotional about it in front of me for the first time. But I said, Mom, at least they got the guy. And she looked up at me and she said, no, Casey, I, I don't believe they ever did. Casey Sherman's mother, Diane Sullivan Dodd, never believed Albert DeSalvo had killed her sister. My mother didn't have uh, any evidence to back this up. It was a sister's intuition. It was a bond between two sisters that couldn't be broken, you know, 40 plus years after the crime. That bond led me to journalism school. That bond led me to where I am today. All right, now you go up to Mary Sullivan. Yes. To the door. What happened? Take us from there, please. 
I knocked at the door. What did you say? I told her I thought there'd be some work in the apartment. Casey Sherman listened to Albert DeSalvo's confession tapes, carefully annotating his account of Mary Sullivan's murder. Uh, she got on the bed, and I got some articles out of a dresser right here. How are you keeping Casey compared control? every detail to Mary's yes, autopsy the, reports. Uh, no, this is on, after I tied it first, right, put the gag on it, right, and I turned it over. But her hands are tied behind her. No, hold it. I'm wrong. I'm getting this here straight here. I'm wrong Albert DeSalvo was confessing to events that never happened. For example, in my aunt's case, Albert DeSalvo claimed that he had strangled her, facing her manually, with his thumbs pressed tightly against her Adam's apple. We know she wasn't killed this way, that she was strangled with three ligatures, two scarves and a nylon stocking, all wrapped very tightly around her neck. In fact, her hyoid bone, which is a very fragile neck bone, fractured in uh, 90% of all manual strangulations, was still intact in her body. Uh, Albert DeSalvo had also claimed that he had uh, intercourse. I'll tell you right here, this is very serious. Look, I did penetrate her. There was not any uh, seminal fluids found within her remains, according to the autopsy report. These are two major discrepancies in Mary Sullivan's murder. Now, people had said that Albert DeSalvo had a photographic memory. He should have remembered all of the details on these, in, within these crimes, but he did not. So that was a huge smoking gun in this case that, that at least suggested he wasn't the killer of all these women. It's one thing to notice inconsistencies, but to really look at evidence and to tear open a case most people considered settled several decades prior, Casey Sherman knew he needed help. Hi there. Hi, you Hi, I am. Nice Hello. to meet you, Elaine. Nice Elaine Sharp you. is the lawyer Casey Sherman called. Sharp made a very public name for herself by defending Louise Woodward, the British nanny accused of shaking a baby to death in 1997. Okay. I met up with Sharp at her home office in Marblehead, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. Okay, follow me through the labyrinth. Oh my gosh. You know, this is... Woo! To begin, Storage Sharp showed area. me her basement. This is serious storage. I can't believe how many boxes are back here. Well, these are, clo- yeah, these are closed cases. Oh, my God. But this is the Boston Strangler case here. So it's about five shelves. Yeah. And yeah. that's probably about, I don't know, how many how many notebooks, you think? Well, how many thousands of pages? Thousands and thousands, thousands, thousands of pages. Thousands and thousands of pages, yeah. In the spring of 2000, Elaine Sharp and Casey Sherman began working on the case. One of their first steps was to file Freedom of Information Act requests. Almost immediately, they hit a roadblock. I was told by the attorney general that he would put his top man on it. And week, weeks went by, months went by, nothing. I said, well, there's no evidence left to really test or, or examine. I said there were more than 200 items taken from Mary's apartment the night she was killed. None of it was ever brought back to my family. Where did it all go? Where did all of that go? You have to ask Ed Brooks. This is Sergeant Bill Dugan of the Boston Cold Case Squad. He's referring to Edward Brooke, the Massachusetts Attorney General, in 1964. What happened was, the because of the multiple jurisdictions involved, they formed the Strangler Task Force. And they came and they took everything from the individual departments, including the Boston Police Department. And they took custody of all that. 
They sent it out for testing. They stored it. It was all under the umbrella of the Attorney General's office um, at the time. And when they pretty much considered that case closed, we don't know what they did with it after that. If we knew that, we'd go get it. Um, and I'm not being a wise guy. They didn't know that in 50 years we would be able to take the collar of somebody's shirt and tell you who was wearing it. It was, wasn't even a twinkle in anybody's eye, much less a cop. Today we'd say, oh, if they'd only, you know, uh, photographed the crime scenes more and saved rape kits and we could do DNA testing now. But, you know, in the 60s and 70s and through the 80s, police departments threw out evidence. They didn't know that DNA testing was going to be invented. They had no idea any of that stuff would be valuable. Brandon Garrett teaches law at the University of Virginia. He specializes in criminal procedure. In some senses, your area of focus, this is at least my understanding, sort of catching the wrong guy. I'm a scholar of wrongful convictions. It's, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think 10 years people would have said that there was such a thing as someone who studied wrongful convictions. But it's, it's become actually a, its own area of academic research. Garrett says that when DNA testing improved in the 1990s, it was deeply divisive in police departments across the country. DNA could create as many problems as it solved. It's highly inconvenient to find out that you got the wrong person. It might mean that you have to open an investigation and find the right person. It means that you're going to have been shown to have made a mistake. And now I'll tell you one thing, I can say it very clearly now. When I did go with her in the kitchen, right, this window was nothing on it. I know it for sure now. There's so many cases that I've looked at, and many of them are far more recent cases where police get a confession. There are good reasons to think that it might be false, but for convenience, they're just happy to close a serious case and move on. Uh, and there have been more than 60 cases now where someone has been exonerated by DNA testing and they'd falsely confessed. The reason why these confessions seem so powerful, so powerful that they, they even trumped DNA sometimes, was that they had all these details. I do know that I looked right through it. Albert DeSalvo's confessions were filled with minute and specific details, enough of them to convince the task force and the public that the Boston Strangler was locked away. Like Susan Kelly, Casey Sherman was trying to unravel all those details. But according to Sherman, his push to re-examine his Aunt Mary's murder struck a nerve. When I started to really investigate this case, I used to get calls at home from people who told me to stay away from this case. And I couldn't believe it at the time. They said, we know what route you take to work. And that was a threat. That, was, that threat wasn't coming from what I believe from any of the real killers. I thought that threat was coming from people at, within the Boston police community or the attorney general's community that didn't want a dark past revealed after so many years because so many people made their careers off the Boston Strangler case. Casey Sherman never found out where those calls came from. He decided he couldn't count on the state to provide the evidence he needed. But there was still one way that the Sullivan family could move forward. It was a bright fall day and the sun was shining. It was a very pleasant day. Um, and there we were performing this gruesome task of digging up you know, a woman's body, um, exhuming her. Um, to re-autopsy her. On October 14th, 2000, Elaine Sharp joined Mary Sullivan's family at St. Francis Xavier Cemetery on Cape Cod. 
Mary's body had been buried there for 35 years. Uh, we had, you know, forensic geologist, forensic toxicologist, forensic microbiologist, um, a, you know, a, a forensic pathologist. Anything with forensic in front of it, we had it. Um, so everybody was very quiet and humble and respectful. Um, it was it was definitely a time of recognizing the death, the very sad death of an individual. Grave diggers uncovered Mary Sullivan's casket and carefully raised it out of the ground. The team drove Mary's remains to a nearby funeral home where the forensics experts had prepared for an autopsy. Extreme care was taken when handling the evidence in order to minimize the chance of contamination. Gloves, gowns, and masks were worn, and all solutions and supplies were sterilized and subjected to short-wavelength UV irradiation before use. Forensic scientist James Stars of George Washington University led the team. They photographed their work. Uh, This is Mary Sullivan. At the exhumation? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I hadn't expected to see these photographs. They were difficult to look at. It doesn't even look like a body. Yeah, it doesn't. No. Why is it all? Well, because it got water in the casket, and so everything, um, you know, is uh, deteriorated. I mean, she was in the grave. What was it? Thirty-seven years before she was exhumed. Um, But mitochondrial DNA is a lot like plastic; it just lasts forever. Oh my god! That's the thing about DNA. It's you know, you've seen it. We get get it from we get dinosaur DNA and things. So that's the miracle of it. The forensic scientists carefully removed the rosary and the wool suit Mary had been buried in. Then they scanned the remains of Mary's body for signs of DNA that Starr's team could test. One of the forensic sciences, you know, put a a light, an ultraviolet light, over her body. Substances that dimly fluoresced under UV light were apparent in the head hair, while a slightly more intense fluorescence was seen about the pubic hair. Her pubic area lit up like Paris, indicating that there was a lot of DNA. Um, It was so dense in the pubic area that our forensic team believed that that DNA, the source of it, was semen. In two separate cases, i.e., the substance was obtained from different regions of pubic hair, segments of mitochondrial DNA were successfully amplified. Mary Sullivan's DNA was sent away for testing, along with the mitochondrial DNA that had been found on her body from two unknown men. They also sent a fresh sample of mitochondrial DNA from Richard DeSalvo, Albert's brother. Siblings have the same mitochondrial DNA. So we tested the mitochondrial DNA in the pubic area of Mary Sullivan against mitochondrial DNA of Richard DeSalvo, which would be exactly the same as the mitochondrial DNA of Albert. It would take a few months for the results to come in, but Sharp and the two families immediately told the press about the exhumation and the results they were hoping for. The following Monday, Tom Riley announced... Attorney General Thomas Riley of Massachusetts said old evidence in the Sullivan case had been found in the Boston Medical Examiner's archives and would be analyzed to see if it would lend itself to DNA testing. According to Attorney General Riley... The majority of Strangler evidence was still missing. Mr. Riley said his office had not been stonewalling the families all those months, 
but had been reluctant to hold out false hopes when there was nothing to test. And there had been nothing to test through months of searching, until an additional inquiry to the medical examiner's office yielded the latest findings. According to the AG's office, because Mary Sullivan was the strangler's last victim, a few pieces of evidence had somehow remained in the custody of the Boston Police Department. The newly discovered evidence was potentially important, but the Sullivan and DeSalvo families remained focused on the DNA test. When James Starrs and his partners finished their work, they announced their conclusion. Our goal was to test any and all evidence as thoroughly as possible to see if Albert DeSalvo might in any way be identified or even suggested as her murderer. Certainly the most straightforward results would have been to find DNA consistent with Mr. DeSalvo, thus implicating him as the assailant. The controversy could perhaps then be ended. However, after wide-ranging and exhaustive attempts, we found no indication of biological material from Albert DeSalvo on the exhumed body of Mary Sullivan. We did, on the other hand, find mitochondrial DNA from two other unidentified individuals. This does not mean that both or either of these DNAs came from her murderer. From whom that DNA originated remains unknown. Elaine Sharp called Richard DeSalvo right away. And uh, I said, I've got some good news. And I told him in Times Square in New York City, the, the news flash on the ticker tape in Times Square kept saying, you know, Albert DeSalvo, not the Boston Strangler. Albert DeSalvo, not the Boston Strangler. And they felt wonderful about that because for the first time in four decades, they were being validated because they had suffered greatly from the opprobrium socially of being related to the so-called Boston Strangler. The government would not accept the test as definitive. The DNA on Mary's body could have been cross-contaminated any number of times prior to her burial. Was it conclusive? No, it never could be, because there was a broken chain of custody. And that was always the case. But coupled with the inconsistencies in his confession, then coupled with the forensic evidence that we found during her uh, re-autopsy, those two things combined um, would have raised reasonable doubt that Albert was the killer of Mary Sullivan. Casey Sherman and the DeSalvo family felt vindicated. But this was only a first step. To move past Albert DeSalvo would mean revisiting suspects and picking up threads of an investigation that ended decades before. All of the other suspects, original suspects in the murders, uh, just went on to live their lives. So they were completely forgotten about. Yeah, Nothing they were basically done. completely forgotten about. Susan Kelly says that some of the prime suspects in the Boston Stranglings were cleared, and some were imprisoned for other crimes. Charles Terry, the Gotham Strangler, got life in prison for the murder of Zenobia Clegg. Terry's M.O. matched that of the first five stranglings. And suspicions surrounded DeSalvo's Bridgewater friend, George Nasser. After all, Nasser was a convicted murderer in his own right. But there are other men Sherman and Kelly believe authorities let get away. 
Some of them scattered to other parts of the country. After the break, a strangler suspect from Boston turns up in the Midwest, and a new series of killings begins. Now, back to Stranglers. On Saturday, July 26, 1969, a couple was walking near their house in the northeastern outskirts of Ann Arbor, Michigan. There were two busy college campuses nearby, the University of Michigan to their west and Eastern Michigan University to their east in Ypsilanti. But where they lived, the landscape was empty of people scenic and wooded. As the couple walked along a dirt road known as the Huron River Parkway, they spotted something in the ravine below. It was the body of a young woman lying face down, nude. Stymied authorities today hunted the deranged strangler of 18-year-old co-ed Karen Sue Bynaman, a freshman at Eastern Michigan University. Karen Sue Bynaman had been an honors student in Grand Rapids. She'd received a scholarship to EMU. One high school classmate remembered her for her independence. A family friend said she thought of Karen Sue as a daughter. She told reporters, When she left, she bought me a toy poodle. And she said it was to keep me from getting lonesome while she was in college. To those who knew her, Bynaman's murder was a shock. To the community, it felt horrifyingly familiar. Washtenaw County Sheriff Douglas J. Harvey said the killing bore many similarities to the string of slayings over the past two years, which has struck fear into residents of the neighboring college towns of Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Because this was so out of the ordinary for a Midwestern town, it took... Uh, until the third or fourth victim before police realized that this was a serial killer. This is Marty Link. She's a true crime author. She wrote the foreword to the book The Michigan Murders by Edward Keyes. The Michigan Murders were a series of highly publicized killings of young women, all committed between the year 1967 and 1969, all in Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area, which is southeastern Michigan, it's north of Detroit, by one individual known as the Ypsilanti Ripper, the Michigan murderer, um, and ultimately in Michigan we call him the co-ed killer. And why was he called the co-ed killer? Uh, all the victims were young women. They were between the ages of 13, so young, and 21. They were abducted. Most of them were raped. Some of them were beaten. Um, some were stabbed. Some were shot. Some were strangled. All of their bodies had been mutilated. Some of them were sexually mutilated after death. And many of the bodies had been dumped, um, not where they had been killed. Two of the women were penetrated with objects. And five of the seven were found with articles of clothing tied around their necks. Anytime anybody was five minutes late for something, somebody immediately thought that you had become a victim. We're afraid, you know, we might be the next one. You never know. It was 
a very intense time and people, you know, that had never locked their doors before locked their doors. And, you know, the whole community was on edge. As the fear spread, a familiar scene began to unfold in Michigan. Women were encouraged to walk in groups and to observe a strict curfew. And the police found themselves in uncharted territory. The community was in an uproar. They were being called the Keystone Cops. And so at that point, they were looking far afield for a solution, including having a psychic come in. It was the same psychic, Peter Herkos, who'd been flown into Boston during the most desperate phase of the Strangler manhunt. The Michigan detectives were actually reading the book, The Boston Strangler, to help them comprehend what was happening. Ultimately, Michigan's governor took a page right out of that book when he gathered five different police jurisdictions into a coordinated task force. First of all, I want to set the record straight on a few things. There is nobody being crowded out of this investigation. I've worked with Sheriff Harvey, Chief Krasny. This is Colonel Frederick Davids of the Michigan State Police. The tips are continuing to come in and the team assignments are being made. Some increases in personnel and some changes in assignment. 750 miles to the east, the city of Boston took note. Strangler still loose? Another madman is on the loose, this time in Ypsilanti, Michigan. The Boston Strangler has never been caught, although a former mental patient confessed to the crimes. There are some similarities between the Boston and the Michigan killings, enough to prompt official speculation that the Boston Strangler might still be at large and operating from a new base. As in the case of the Boston killings, the Ypsilanti killer has left no clues. The similarities to Boston were alarming enough that a Detroit newspaper flew in Fildi Natale as a consultant. Another veteran of the Strangler case had landed nearby as well. A man by the name of Dr. Ames Roby, who had been at Bridgewater Hospital, he became the new director of a brand new Center for Forensic Psychiatry at the Ypsilanti State Hospital. Complete coincidence. Dr. Ames Roby had moved to town in 1967. He was running a forensic psychiatry center at the new hospital. And so one day he opens the paper and he sees a photograph that was taken at a rental strike. It was kind of, you know, just sort of some college activists protesting the cost of their off-campus housing. And he sees a photograph and he sees a face in that photograph that he recognizes. The person Roby recognized was a deeply disturbed inmate he'd talked with many times at Bridgewater Hospital in Massachusetts. And now he was a grad student at the University of Michigan. We'll call him David Parker. What Dr. Roby told the Ann Arbor police was chilling to me. And, you know, he's a trained professional. Think of the thousands of people that he's examined. And yet this person stood out to him in his memory, enough so that when he saw his picture in the newspaper, he immediately called the police. So that makes a statement to me. In 1964, David Parker had been a local troublemaker in Boston. He was smart, with an IQ over 150. He'd been kicked out of Harvard for selling hallucinogenic drugs he made in his own lab. Parker had been arrested one day in January when a police officer saw him assaulting his pregnant wife in Harvard Square. 
He said he had just purchased some champagne and cheese, rented a car from Ava's rental, and wanted to take his wife on a picnic. I said, wasn't it rather cold to have a picnic on the outside? He said, It's never too cold to have fun. But my wife didn't want to come, and I tried to get her into the car. Parker was dressed bizarrely. His light-colored hair was dyed black. He had additional curls of hair glued to his forehead, and he'd painted his white face black with stage makeup. He wore an earring in his right ear, a real dagger in his belt and sandals on his feet in winter. He told the arresting officer, I'm living as Othello. As in Othello, the increasingly unhinged character in Shakespeare's famous play. Othello strangled his wife because she was unfaithful to him. Mine wouldn't have had time. We were only married yesterday morning. This is how Parker was depicted in the movie version of Gerald Frank's book, The Boston Strangler. Marry in the morning and murder in the afternoon. Of course. Sheer omnipotence. <laughs> According to records, David Parker's wife told the police, I'm scared to death of him. He tried to strangle me. She said Parker had gripped her neck and then stopped suddenly and told her, I have decided I shall not strangle you. A judge sent Parker to Bridgewater almost a year before Albert DeSalvo would arrive. John Bottomley, head of the Strangler Task Force, asked Dr. Roby to evaluate Parker as a possible suspect in the stranglings. Parker told Roby how he felt about women. Do you know what I do with women? If I had my way, I'd torture them. They're the recipients of the justice of my anger. They wear the pants and they shouldn't wear them. I want to buy an island off the coast of Australia and prohibit any female from setting foot in it. A world without women a man's kingdom, and to make doubly sure, I'd set machine guns around the perimeter as well as barbed wire just in case to keep them out. Roby's suspicions were growing. During one interrogation, he thought of a way to test Parker. And I suddenly got the funny idea and said very sweetly to the guys, will you get David his shoes? His feet must be cold. And then I watched David closely. Most people tie their shoes just once. And David tied this knot with one extra half hitch in it, which locks on itself. And David automatically tied the extra knot and immediately the bow. At this point, Dr. Knefik looked as though he was getting really excited. He held out a piece of string and said, David, if you were going to kill somebody, what kind of knot would you tie? That's not the most creative question. I sort of felt, oh no. David immediately said, hey, what's going on? You think I'm the strangler or something? And the cat was out of the bag. After that, authorities got no cooperation from Parker. He wouldn't answer any more questions without his lawyer present. And later that year, Bridgewater saw the arrival of a certain handyman from Malden named Albert H. DeSalvo. In a book researched on alternate Boston Stranglers, 
the goal is to bring out that suspect that was either overlooked or his name was not allowed to be used and who may have continued on his killing path. This is Hank Brewster. That's a pen name. Brewster researches and tries to solve difficult and controversial cases. For his book on the Boston Strangler, Brewster dug through old archives and newspapers. He picked up on a lead that had been largely forgotten after Albert DeSalvo confessed. When DeSalvo was in Bridgewater, it was claimed that he discussed murders with other inmates who were in for similar crimes. Terry wasn't one of them. Charles Terry, the Gotham Strangler. But the Harvard student Boston Strangler suspect was. And he was witnessed talking to DeSalvo on many occasions. The man who witnessed these conversations was George Harrison, one of the two men who'd attempted to escape Bridgewater with DeSalvo. This is an article from the Boston Globe. Harrison told a reporter that an inmate had filled in DeSalvo on all of the details of the stranglings during conversations over the period of a month at Bridgewater in 1965. Harrison said he had overheard some 15 to 20 of these conversations. According to Harrison's story, the unidentified inmate presumably was the real strangler. Harrison said he tutored him and that Albert DeSalvo is not the strangler. The other inmate told DeSalvo details of the stranglings and said, You have to get these things right because they're going to get you. You've got to get it in your subconscious. Records aren't clear about exactly how long DeSalvo and Parker truly overlapped inside Bridgewater. Susan Kelly says it was five weeks. But authorities took the assertions seriously. The district attorney questioned Harrison and planned to give him a lie detector test over these reports. We don't know if Harrison passed or not. One of Harrison's claims they found most concerning was that David Parker had been on familiar terms with one of the Strangler victims. He had actually dated Beverly Sammons and knew her apartment and could have described that murder that DeSalvo confessed to. And in his confession, he didn't get it quite right. He said he used a switchblade. It was a paring knife left in the drainer covered with blood. The killer obviously knew Beverly Sammons, and this Harvard student dated her. Only two of the Strangler victims had been stabbed. Beverly Sammons' autopsy report counted four stab wounds in her throat and 18 in the left breast. The blood on the knife found with Beverly Sammons' body was tested. The blood type was common, but it was consistent with David Parker's blood. Roby had always doubted DeSalvo could have committed all the stranglings. He thought Parker was a strong suspect for Sammons' murder, and perhaps some of the stranglings of older women as well. Still, there was no hard evidence Parker had done anything. Roby told Gerald Frank about it. We sent him back to court two months ago. We had to send him back. He's back in society. I don't know. 
What we had in the way of evidence was not sufficient to warrant an indictment or a grand jury investigation. David, again, is extremely intelligent and also quite crooked, which is quite necessary for this kind of crime. He filled the picture very nicely. Parker was released, and soon after, he found his way to Ann Arbor. Coming up, the frustrating search for Michigan's co-ed killer. The killer, or killers, continued to elude police. Clues were few and far between. Emotions ran high in the community. Well, we're police officers. We're not miracle men. We can only work with what we've got. And now, back to Stranglers. A University of Michigan graduate student who was a suspect in the Boston Strangler murders is the prime suspect here in the campus murder slayings. It was learned yesterday. The Ann Arbor chief of police, Walter Krasny, said the man is a 26-year-old graduate student in chemistry and described him as extremely bright. Krasny confirmed that the suspect was formerly an inmate at Bridgewater State Hospital in Massachusetts, where he was questioned about the Boston Stranglings. In 1969, Dr. Ames Roby told detectives in Ypsilanti everything he could remember about David Parker. The police listened carefully to Roby's account. What they didn't tell him is that they'd been watching Parker since the murders began. The latest victim, age 13, was found mutilated along a road Wednesday, about a mile from her home in Ypsilanti. A piece of electrical cord two feet long was wrapped around her neck. The victims of the Boston Strangler were also mutilated and decorated with articles of clothing and other materials about their necks. Krasny said the suspect has been under round-the-clock surveillance since the girl's body was found. Police had two squad cars following Parker at all times but they struggled to find hard evidence. And Parker himself was growing agitated. The Detroit Free Press quoted him anonymously. I had nothing to do with the Boston Strangler, and I had nothing to do with these local murders. If people find out my identity, I will not be able to continue my studies. I won't be able to get a job. I'll have to move out of the state and start over again. Four months later, Karen Sue Bynaman disappeared. She was last seen visiting a wig shop in Ypsilanti to buy a wig for a wedding the following week. Bynaman reportedly told the two female clerks she was doing two things for the first time that day, buying a wig and riding on a motorcycle. The two women looked across the street to see a young man with dark, side-parted hair waiting on a blue motorcycle. Karen Sue told the clerks she had just met the man. According to newspapers, that very same day, Karen Sue had sent a letter to her mother who was concerned for her daughter's safety. Don't worry, Karen Sue had written. I'm careful. The clerks in the wig store advised her not to accept the ride, but Karen Sue walked across the street, got on the motorcycle, and was never seen alive again. 
Did you kill Karen Subineman? No, I never met Karen Subineman. I never picked her up on my bike. Doesn't it bother you being called a serial killer? Yes, it does. It's bad enough being convicted of one thing that you didn't do without being labeled for something that you haven't done. This is John Norman Collins. He was a student at Eastern Michigan University. He rode a blue Triumph motorcycle, like the one Karen Sue Bynuman disappeared on. And when police searched his car, they found pieces of fabric, drops of blood, and some scalp tissue. One John Norman Collins, age 23, of 619 Emmett Street, Ypsilanti, has been arrested and charged with the murder of Karen Sue Bynuman. John Norman Collins's mother, Loretta, remortgaged her home to pay her son's legal fees. You've been here how long now? 11 years, since 1977. In 1988, WXYZ-TV in Detroit sent reporter Marilyn Turner to Marquette Branch Prison. It's not the nicest place you're locked up 23 hours a day. Collins is still there, serving his life sentence for Bynum's murder. He's never been charged with the other six murders. But still, most in Michigan refer to Collins as the co-ed killer, guilty in their minds of all the murders. Collins says he's never killed anybody. The murders stopped when they arrested you and took you in. I don't think they did, and I don't think you one person... You don't think they did? Tell me. Well, from what I understand, they didn't. If any reporter had ever followed up and checked the police files or the hospital records or followed the news articles after the trial, they would find that there were still murders. There are still murders. I just showed you the article in the paper. There are still murders going on. Yes, but shortly murders. after that, those types of murders stopped. Okay, now what do you mean by types? They refer to these as co-ed... Now, there's at least three or four of them that weren't co-eds. So even that is a fallacy. Well, they said that there some, was a some, similarity. There was, okay. all, there was always sexual abuse. There there was, there no, was, no, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. Some people... Four were, out of seven, I believe. Oh, okay, what, okay, that okay. shows a dissimilarity. If, you, if, if, if you're robbing stores, you're going to follow the same thing that's working for you. You're not going to shoot one person, stab another, strangle another, bludgeon another. I mean... Some are raped, some aren't raped, some are fully clothed. Or an object some was stuck up the vagina. That sounds like the Boston Strangler thing. It could be copycat killings. You know, it's something that, you know, there's no way that I would be convinced that one person ever did that. Almost all of the Michigan murders remain unsolved and open. In that way, they're like the Boston Stranglings. In both cases... Once the police had their man and their narrative, the task forces were dissolved, the fear dissipated, and the rest of the suspects carried on with their lives. David Parker, twice suspected of serial murder, left the Michigan area. Parker went on to have a successful career in the sciences. He's never been charged in any capital crime. That's why we've continued to use the pseudonym that Gerald Frank gave him 50 years ago. I wanted to speak to Parker and hear his own explanation for the bizarre behavior that led him to become a suspect in two serial killings. We reached out to him, but he never responded. Coming up next week, our final episode, the police find evidence that turns the Mary Sullivan case around 
again. And we look at the legacy of the Boston Stranglings in policing, in our culture, and in the everyday lives of women. Stranglers comes from Earwolf and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks to Ben Avishai, Andy Christens, Dale R. Leslie for the recording of the Michigan Task Force press conference, to WXYZ-TV in Detroit. And as always, thanks to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are... Casey Holford. David Jambuso. Lauren Fitzgerald. Julie Lawrence. R. Ward Duffy. Thatcher Keats. Original scoring is by Allison Layton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil Di Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next time on Stranglers. More than a decade after Casey Sherman's investigation indicated Albert DeSalvo was innocent of his Aunt Mary's murder, Sherman got a phone call. Strongly suggesting that I go to the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Today we announce a major development in the investigation into the homicide of 19-year-old Mary Sullivan almost 50 years ago. And a woman who may have avoided death at the hands of the strangler returns to Boston for the first time in over 50 years. Just this feeling of, uh, wow, I was really close to having that happen to me. Really close. The story, the legacy, and the questions we live with. Next time on Stranglers. Stranglers.